This is They Create Worlds, episode 205, Shepherd's Mass Effect 2 and 3. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey and I'm joined by my co-host Alex. Hello. I'm Commander Shepard. And this is my favorite podcast episode on the Citadel. Wait, 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 wait a minute. Didn't you say, didn't Commander Shepard say the last episode was favorite podcast episode on the Citadel? That's not important. They're all my favorite episodes. Are you just endorsing every episode that you can't do that? Yes, I can. They can't all be your favorites. They let me. They're all my favorites. I spend so many hours covering these episodes, <laughs> caressing them molding them into works of paragonal glory that they're all my favorite children. Uh-huh. Well, I suppose since you did give that endorsement that, that you promised that we're obligated to give a discount, and uh, boy, do I have a discount for all you Commander Shepherds out there, because it turns out that my book is part of the current Humble Indie Bundle of Taylor and Francis slash CRC Press game design and history books. So let me get this straight. You didn't decide to publish through Big Jeffrey's Publishing Emporium in order to get the best discount deal that you could have. Instead, you went to this charity in order to raise money for good deeds or something. And then we can get your book for some nominal fee like... Let me look at this. 30 to $25? What kind of insanity are you doing, man? You're not going to get any profit. That's all going to go to charity, and they're going to get your book, plus all these other books. I mean, a lot of books. That's right. A huge number of books. I cannot personally speak to any of the others. Most of them are game design books, but there are a couple of game history books. I have heard that the uh, book that does a deep dive on platformers is very good, though I haven't read it myself. But the important thing for those of us here at the They Create Worlds podcast is that They Create Worlds, the people and companies that shape the video game industry, volume one, is part of this bundle. If you uh, donate at least $25 towards the bundle, this is one of the books that you will get. You will get several other books as well. Most of the proceeds go to charity. You are, of course, able to leave a little to the author as well, but I mean, I'll level with you. I've never done this for the money. If you want to leave me a cut, that's fine, but I'm not doing this promotion right here because I want your money. I'm doing this promotion because we have been striving at They Create Worlds to uh, correct misconceptions about video game history, provide a new narrative, a new foundational narrative for video game history. It's not perfect in every way, it's not brilliant in every way, but it is a lot more accurate than what's come before. If the price of the book, which I know is expensive, I know, has been uh, something that has held you back, this is your best legal opportunity to get a copy of this book right now by uh, giving $25 uh, to a great uh, great cause. We'll, of course, put the link to the bundle in the show notes, but you can also find it by going to Humble Bundle's website, looking at their uh, current book bundles, and choosing the one with all the Taylor and Francis game books. 
Obviously, this is only relevant if you're uh, listening to this episode relatively near publication on uh, March the 1st. But it is going to be running for a couple more weeks still after uh, this episode goes live. So you got some time to go over there and get the book and, and some other fine books if you like. I mean, $25 for these books. I'm just tempted to buy it just because of some of the other books that seem interesting. Absolutely. So I can say with much more honesty than my uh, friend Jeffrey here that I'm Commander Shepard, and this is my favorite humble bundle on the Citadel. I can't argue. So go ahead, kids. If you want to have a digital copy of Alex's book, go out there, buy it. It's well worth it. If you're interested in this podcast and you're like, you know, I don't want to spend the amount of money it costs for that, I can understand. 25 bucks is not a lot, and especially since you get his book and a bunch of others. Absolutely. Anyway... As our obligatory banter uh, indicates, we are doing part two of our look at the Mass Effect series, a two-part look at the series. Uh, still very confident at this point it's, it's going to be uh, just two parts. What are the odds looking at? Update the folks. What are the odds looking at now? Well, considering our pre-episode recording banter, we're upgrading the odds to eight to one odds, eight to one odds. All right, I'm feeling pretty good here. I think we're going to get this done in two. But yes, we need to finish our look at the Mass Effect trilogy in our first part. For those who don't remember, we kind of went into the background of the trilogy and its main creator, Casey Hudson, how the project came to be, what the major influences were on the project, and how this thing was shaped throughout the creation of the first game. Today, what we're going to do is take a deeper look at Mass Effect 1 as a game some of the things that worked well, some of the things that didn't work well, not just personal opinion, but also in the opinion of the designers, and see how they evolved the series from there, moving into Mass Effect 2, which is generally regarded as the best game in the series and is often included in lists of the best games of all time, and how they moved from there to the slightly more controversial Mass Effect 3. A lot to cover, but... Not really. So I think we're in good shape to conclude this in two parts. We don't have to build up all the background information and context. That's right. And and we're not going to go so much into the design or development history of two and three as we are into some kind of more high concept philosophical. How did this thing shift and how did we end up in a place where so many people were so incredibly unhappy? There you go. That is part two of the Mass Effect trilogy. Next time on They Create Worlds, we will be covering... <laughs> yeah. So anyway, uh, we did get the game released last time, and we talked about its sales impact, which was pretty significant. But we didn't really look at the game itself and what it accomplished and, in some cases, what it failed to accomplish. That's what we're going to start with in part two here. So we did talk about high concept. It's a game where you're playing this character, Commander Shepard, who can be male or female, who is what's called a Spectre, which is basically a special forces operative that is allowed to do whatever they want, whenever they want, with no accountability except to the Citadel Council in order to get important missions done. The mission in the first game, which we didn't really talk about in detail, involves this race called the Reapers, this kind of unknowable, very eldritch, Lovecraftian-type race of machines that comes in and wipes out all life, 
not all life, but all advanced civilizations and all advanced races in the galaxy every 50,000 years. Coming to learn that this threat exists, coming to grips with the fact that this threat exists, and foiling their first plot through their agent Saren Arcturus to gain control of the Citadel so that they can send this code that allows them to take control of the entire network that they built in order to basically make it impossible to resist their invasion because everyone is cut off from everybody else and can't get anywhere meaningful. That's a very, very high-level overview, leaving out a lot of detail. Go play the games yourself. They're really good. That gives you a kind of an idea of where we are. So the structure of the first game is actually very similar to the structure of Knights of the Old Republic, which shouldn't be surprising since it is by the same creative team. You have a prologue section on a prologue world where you're kind of getting oriented to what's going on in this universe. Then you have a series of missions that take place on planetary hubs as you're trying to track down Sarah and figure out what his ultimate plan is and figure out how to stop him. These worlds can be done in any order. There's four of them. The first three can be done in any order. You don't get access to the fourth one until you've done, I think, two of the others. So you have a little bit of flexibility there, but you can't do it first, essentially. So then you get a series of hub worlds where you have to go and complete quests so that you can do in any order. And then these all funnel you into the final world where you go and deal with the threat to the galaxy that has to do with a long vanished race, which is pretty much how Knights of the Old Republic works, right down to having to deal with ancient technology that can kill everybody that was left by the Rakatans and ancient race. So there's a lot of parallels there. And so, uh, you know, the main quest in the game is called Race Against Time. And that's really what it is. You're going from world to world trying to figure out Saren's plans and where he's located and how to stop him before he can bring the Reapers back and uh, doom all the advanced races of the galaxy to extinction. That's the main part of the game. And that's the core part of the game. But we have to remember from our first part that Casey Hudson was also very interested in having this be an exploration game influenced very much by the electronic arts game Starflight. Unlike, say, Knights of the Old Republic, which is is just focused on those worlds, they also decided that they would include a lot of other systems, a lot of other planets, where the player could go and just explore and discover and take on various side quests. There were a couple of problems with this. One, a more conceptual problem and more a more dramatic gameplay problem. The first conceptual problem is that you are literally in a race against time, such a race against time that the main overarching mission of the game is called a race against time. If you have to stop Sarah and you have to do it soon or something very bad is going to happen to the whole galaxy. And you know exactly where you have to go to stop him. It's not like you have to explore the galaxy to find out where it is. You're told at the very beginning, go to these three planets. And then when the fourth planet unlocks, you're told very specifically, you should also go to this planet. It's not a mystery where you need to go to combat Saren. Why are you gallivanting all over the galaxy doing all of these other things when time is of the essence? From a plot standpoint, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And for a game that is trying to make a lot of sense in every aspect of its creation, that kind of strikes an odd note, I think, personally. Yeah, but I can also see where they're coming from. They want it to be an exploring game that you can enjoy and play at your own rate and go off on side adventures and do that other stuff. But they don't want to have a doom clock sort of like in 
Fallout, where <laughs> you do have a hard limit of how long you can play before bad guys just win. Well, yeah, exactly. And no one would ever advocate doing that. I mean, even the Fallout people realized that they made a terrible mistake when they did that. So like I said, this isn't a gameplay problem, but it's a conceptual disconnect. It's a disconnect between the narrative and the game systems. The real question is, how can you convey that in a video game like this and still have it have some degree of gravitas? Exactly. Since this is a game and a game series that is entirely about being cinematic, this creates a conceptual problem. And it's one that the developers considered a conceptual problem, too. This isn't just me, like, spouting an opinion here. It's also them spouting an opinion. The other problem is they conceptually, and this, this comes straight from the designers again, this isn't me speculating, conceptually, they considered the side missions a bonus. Because they were thinking in terms of, we've made this game like Knights of the Old Republic, where we have these detailed and interesting hub worlds with characters to interact with, quests to go on, and big bads to vanquish. That's the game. That's what we did in Knights of the Old Republic. The side quest stuff is then, let's put this huge exploration thing on top of it that's almost a bonus. In their own minds, they did not see this side quest content as equal to their main quest content. I also imagine they didn't expect you to go through and do all of the side content. Yes. It might have been just, you're doing the main quest. Oh, I happen to bump into this one person. Maybe I'll help them because I'm a good person. Or they have something valuable that might help me on my quest. And then it's worth me to say, okay, fine, I'll go kill that bandit for you because he has this phase discriminator that lets me get into the other guy's place easier. Whatever. Right. And I think it's fair to say that they also weren't necessarily thinking in terms of completionist players as well. They had a lot they had to do. They had a lot of assets they had to create. They're doing all of this motion capture. They're doing all of this animating. There's a lot. So they wanted to provide a lot of this exploratory content so that they could kind of mirror that Starflight experience. But they didn't have a lot of resources they could dedicate to it. And so what they basically did is they created about four stock environments, four stock locations, like a, a prefab colonial structure, a mine, a bunker, and a kind of cargo ship in space. They kind of created these four basic stock environments, interior environments, and just used them over and over and over again for these couple of dozen or whatever side quest missions. They'd change the layout of the cover, they'd put different objects in them, but the rooms were exactly the same, the layout of the rooms were exactly the same, the textures of the rooms were exactly the same, it's just some objects changed and some orientation of objects changed some. It was very repetitive, where you had these nice, interesting, bespoke environments for the main planets, Therum, Ferris, Neveria, Vermeer, Ilos, and Eden Prime, the prologue planet. Everything else was very samey. Even though there was this exploration aspect, the exploration aspect ended up being kind of tedious. They had this vehicle, the Mako, that you would drive around, and you would have your main objective for the side quest, because this is all the side quest worlds. You do use the Mako in the main quest worlds as well, but those are guided paths. You're not exploring. You just go along a preset route. There's no deviation from it when you're in the Mako. But when you're in the Mako on these side quest planets, 
your main objective spot is labeled on the map. Then they always label one anomaly and one object of interest on the map. But then there are also other things, mostly minerals, but occasionally Easter eggs, minerals that you can harvest for credits and for completion of an exploration quest. And then there are a couple of Easter eggs here and there. But other than that, there's nothing else to find there. So it becomes very rote. And again, you don't have to be a completionist. And I don't know that they were taking completionists into account. But it becomes very rote. You drop on the planet. You go to the highlighted spaces on the map. You do the quest, the mission, I should say, in the same prefab kind of structure that you've already done five other missions in by the time you've been playing for a while. Maybe you explore the surface of the planet. Maybe you don't, but it's really tedious to explore the rest of the surface. The Mako controls really oddly, and it was a design choice. It wasn't just because they were bad at vehicle mechanic design. They thought it would be fun to have a vehicle to kind of simulate lower gravity kind of worlds and have a vehicle where you could really bounce around. They thought that would be fun. It turned out that it was way too floaty and bouncy. It was very janky. They put in a lot of terrain, a lot of mountainous terrain that you have to traverse that can be very difficult and very tedious to traverse in the bloody thing. So it's just mission after mission after mission of driving around with this vehicle that's horrible to control and doing side quests that really blend together in a lot of ways. There was a failure of imagination in the side quest design, and it came from a place of good intention. They didn't stop to think that maybe the player is going to want this content to be as high a quality as the main story content. Now that we've created this very lived-in universe, maybe players aren't satisfied anymore with being in the same environment 50 times. I mean, that would probably worked five years ago. But part of the whole point of Mass Effect is they're trying to create this very specific world. Using this generic stuff, even though the art assets themselves are of high quality, even though it maintains the overall aesthetic of the world, that genericness takes you out of what they are accomplishing in all of their other spaces in the main plot, which are very unique and very interesting. One of the main failures of the game was a failure of side quest. The side quest just didn't work. They didn't work conceptually in terms of how they related to the plot. And they didn't work in execution based on the janky vehicle physics and the constantly reused stuff. The other thing that didn't work great, really, was the melding of the RPG and shooter mechanics. It plays primarily like a shooter, like in your moment-to-moment gameplay. It's all in real time. You need to move to cover. You need to be in cover to stop yourself from getting absolutely massacred by the enemy. So it's, it's a cover shooter in its moment-to-moment gameplay. But it's an RPG in the execution of its gameplay. What I mean by that is the things you can do in the game are very stat-dependent. So at the beginning of the game, you're this elite special forces agent. You've been chosen for the Spectres because you are the best of the best that humanity has to offer. But your stats in using various weapons are all very low because it's an RPG. You need to have some kind of progression there, but from a narrative and structure standpoint, 
Why is someone who can barely fire a rifle supposed to be part of a special forces team? Exactly. You get the same kind of idea in the original XCOM, where you have this elite alien hunting force, and they can only hit the target 20% of the time. Right, exactly. The problem is that stat engine is actually driving your success in combat and not your manipulation of the character as it would be in a shooter. Let's say that you're aiming your gun. First of all, when you have low levels, it can be incredibly hard to aim your gun because you're not good at aiming. You have low accuracy because your stats are low. So, you know, you start the game and you try aiming your sniper rifle, which is the only one that has like a scope where you zoom in. The others you can aim, but it's just a small zoom in. It's not a tight focus. That thing's going to be dancing around like crazy. Good luck even lining up on a target consistently because your accuracy rating's low. But then let's say you line up on the target perfectly and you get off a shot. And to all appearances, it looks like you lined up a perfect shot. But your accuracy rating, your stat, is still dictating what actually happens. So it can look on the screen like you've got a perfect shot, and the game could still register a miss or a low damage shot, because that's what the stats dictate. It is an RPG first and a shooter second in mechanics, even though in moment-to-moment gameplay and presentation as you're playing it, it feels like a shooter first and an RPG second. That's a massive disconnect. They should have used the GURP system. It would have worked way better for the <laughs> gun combat. <laughs> right. So it was a massive disconnect between what you, the character, were doing in the moment-to-moment gameplay and what the underlying stat engine said you were actually doing. The other thing was you have abilities in the game because it is an RPG. They do have a system that is similar to, say, the Force in Star Wars, which is biotics. They have an in-universe explanation involving our favorite Element Zero for why this happens. And it's a good in-universe explanation. It's not mystical like the Force. They have a Force-like abilities with biotics, and then they also have special abilities for non-biotic classes so that they don't feel left out. But you have to pause everything and open up a menu to choose an ability that you want to use. It's a real-time game, but there's constant pauses if you want to use abilities, which is part of the RPG aspect of the game. So they didn't hit the sweet spot very well in game one between RPG mechanics and shooter mechanics. Now, there are other things they did very well. I mean, Mass Effect was fairly groundbreaking in its cinematic presentation. Now, it's not the first game to do any of the things it did. There were other games coming out at roughly the same time, like Uncharted, that were charting, haha, the same path forward towards more cinematic games that they were. So I'm not in any way trying to claim that they're unique. But especially among role-playing games, I mean, load up a conversation in Knights of the Old Republic, then load up a conversation in Mass Effect. And these are games that are only separated by four years, Knights of the Old Republic's 2003 game. They're only separated by four years, but of course, two different generations of systems. It's a night and day difference. The characters in Mass Effect don't emote as well as characters do today, even. But their lips are entirely in sync. They make much more realistic-looking gestures. There's still awkwardness in the animation of gestures, because it's still only a small set of gestures. It's not completely fluid, but they did motion capture gestures, and so they have realistic-looking gestures. They were very concerned about having realistic eye movement. 
not just blinking, but having eyes and, and heads focus in the right places. Again, because of the weirdness of the Unreal Engine, it doesn't always work. In the first game especially, characters have this tendency to glance their eyes all the way to the side while they're leaving a scene, <laughs> which is very weird. But you have characters entering and leaving the scene. You have realistic lower facial movement. There's not that much upper facial movement. It's still not as good as today's games where you have full facial movement. They have more realistic gestures. They did a lot of stuff that really pushed the state of the art of cinematic forward. And then the dialogue wheel, of course, which made conversations much snappier and much more cinematic. It's a groundbreaking RPG in cinematic presentation. They were trying to be groundbreaking in cinematics. They were trying to be groundbreaking in story. And they were trying to be groundbreaking in gameplay mechanics all at the same time. As is true time and time again throughout the history of video games, it is really hard to be groundbreaking in more than one or two areas at the same time. When you try to groundbreak everything at once, you tend to just break instead of groundbreak. Mass Effect is still a fantastic game. I mean, you know, obviously it's subjective whether a game like that's your cup of tea or not, but it does accomplish most of its goals, which it probably ac accomplishes more of its goals than you could usually hope for when they're trying to redefine everything at once. But because they are trying to redefine everything at once, we have these imperfections in things like side quests, in things like melding gameplay mechanics from different genres. Going into Mass Effect 2, they realized that these were the areas that they really had to figure out what to improve. Because the entire trilogy was planned to be improved and changed over time as they got more familiar with the systems and as they got user feedback. User feedback was going to be very important iterating this. They knew that they wanted to complete this within a console generation. They knew that they wanted to complete the entire trilogy within the same generation and within the same console generation. They knew that they weren't going to have to worry too much about migrating. Now, they knew that the tools would improve over time and their ability to use the tools would improve. So it's not like they were going to stay static. Believe me, Mass Effect 3 looks much better than Mass Effect 1, even though it's all in the Unreal Engine. So they were able to evolve it over time, but they were keeping it within that basic framework of that engine and that console generation. They also knew right up front that it was going to be a trilogy where your choice is impacted. And they knew that the whole thing was building to a confrontation with the Reapers introduced in the first game. But they didn't know exactly how they were getting there. They did not have the entire plot figured out, not even in a high-level outline by the end of the first game. They had the first game fully plotted out, they had the basics of the universe figured out, and they had some very vague high-level bullet points about where the series could go in the future, leading to a final confrontation with the Reapers. That sounds dangerous. I've seen so many good sci-fi series, stories, whatever, fail because they have a wonderful beginning, wonderful middle. <laughs> they just completely botch the ending in some way of just sort of like hand-waving, everyone's friends now, goodbye. <laughs> Yes, and our episodes are not plotted in advance either, but you have still managed to foreshadow where some of the ultimate problems in all of this are going to go. They did know a couple of things. Like I said, they knew that the third game had to be the final titanic struggle with the Reapers. They also knew they wanted the second game to be the quote-unquote dark episode. 
very common in sci-fi trilogies as epitomized by uh, The Empire Strikes Back in the original Star Wars trilogy. The second episode of the trilogy is the one where you go dark. Heavier atmosphere, more desperate odds, more failures on the part of the protagonists. You make it the oppressive, overwhelming episode so that then you can emerge into the light of the finale. They kind of knew that. And they knew that in order to keep things from getting too insane, that a lot of the big decisions that you had to make in the first game would be backburnered in the second game to control the amount of variation that they would have coming out of it. There are certain huge choices you make in the big game. Save or kill the Rachni. Do you regenocide an entire species or let them wander off? In the final battle at the Citadel, do you save the Council or at the cost of human lives, or do you let the Council die? Again, they do things to make this choice hard because the Council basically treats you like assholes the entire time. They're assholes the entire time. There's some stuff in there about how, you know, they have to look out for the greater good of everybody and blah, blah, blah. There's some counterbalance to it. But on a visceral level, you feel like the council has been jerking you around the whole game. Saving the council means that more humans are going to die because the fleet is going to have to commit itself to the battle early and they're going to lose more ships and thousands of more humans are going to die than otherwise. It becomes a choice of do you save this council that's an important symbol of galactic unity and represents the center of galactic government at the cost of your fellow comrades in arms, not people that you've met during the game. It's not made that specific, but, you know, fellow humans. Or do you let these jerks die, serves them right anyway for ignoring all of my warnings about this threat. If they had just listened to me, the Citadel probably wouldn't have ended up being attacked anyway because we'd have been able to stop them. They deserve what they get. Humanity first, let those effers burn. They make it a conundrum, but it's a big decision. Do I save the council or kill the council? Do I spend the entire game promoting primarily the interests of humanity and treating humanity as a species that is going to basically take over and dominate all the other races? Or do I see humanity as part of this new larger galactic community that we're newcomers to and don't fully understand, and it's important that we cooperate and integrate into this society? Do I become the Terran Empire or the Federation? Yeah, exactly. These are some of the big choices you have to make in the first game. They don't really want to deal with those choices in the second game. That's complicated. Yeah, it, it, it gets too complicated. You know, this is, this is a massive idea. You have literally hundreds across the whole series of decisions, all of which can impact how the second game plays out, how the third game plays out. So the more you deal with those choices early, the more you have to keep, keep track of those choices as you go later and later. So they decided to mostly punt on the big choices. The other thing that they decided to basically punt on was the romances. Because one thing we didn't bring up last time, because it's more germane to our subject here, is that part of being Commander Shepard is not just making the big decisions that impact the galaxy, like the ones we're talking about, but it's also shaping who Commander Shepard is as a person. There are a variety of different backgrounds you can have, some of which are more paragon and heroic, some of which are more renegade and dark. 
there are different responses that you can have. And some of those responses are Paragon and Renegade responses that add Paragon or Renegade points within this morality system. But some of them are just, do I do a more conciliatory response or do I do a more human-centric response that may not add points, but it shapes how you're role-playing your character. Are you a human supremacist or are you more cooperative? Do you tend to follow orders and respect authority or do you tend to get mad at authority and get annoyed at people that get in your way? Sometimes those dialogue choices lead to Paragon Renegade points. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes it's just shaping who your character is. It's about role-playing your own version of Commander Shepard, whoever that is. So part of that is giving romance options. Common thing that RPGs do for that. There are three characters that you can have romances with in the first game, though only two at any given time because there are no homosexual relationships, something that some people would get on Bioware for later. You have the two main squad mates that you start with, the human alliance people, Caden and Ashley. You can romance the opposite. Males can romance Ashley, females can romance Caden. The Asari that we talked about last time, the all-female species, they reproduce in a completely different manner that doesn't involve sex. They're all considered, quote-unquote, women, but they're really unisex, so they can have sex with anybody. I mean, they don't reproduce through sex, so they can reproduce is what I mean through anybody, because obviously anyone can have sex with anybody. But what I meant is they can reproduce with anybody. Both male and female shepherds can romance the Asari squad member, Liara. Even before the first game was created, they decided that they wanted the romances to have an arc too, where you would start a romance in the first game, the romance would maybe go a little cold in the second game, and then it would heat back up in the third game. Kind of standard, boy gets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl back kind of trope, which was common in a lot of romantic Hollywood movies at the time. They already knew that the relationship was going to go kind of cold in the second game, so they also decided to punt on the relationships. Basically, your romantic partners from the first game barely appear in the second game, and you get barely interaction with them so that they can put those romances on ice. And then they give you new romance options in the second game that you can quote-unquote cheat on your partner with, with varying uh, results. A lot of the big stuff from the first game was just left out of the second game, with the idea that they would circle back around to it in the third game. The other design decisions that they made were to address those fundamental problems that we talked about in the first game. The way the side quests didn't meld so well, and the way that the shooter and RPG mechanics didn't meld very well. So with the mechanics, they basically did a complete redesign of how combat works. It's still a cover-based third-person over-the-shoulder shooter, but just about everything else is different. They got rid of stats that affected your fundamental ability to hold a weapon steady. Yes, you can still increase accuracy as time goes on and stuff like that, but that's entirely baked into the individual weapon mechanics. In the real world, some weapons are more accurate than other weapons. But it's the gun that's determining this now, not the character. If you aim at something, you know, if you have a less accurate assault rifle, maybe some of those shots still go wide. But the majority of your shots are going to hit that place that you aimed at. And if you have your sniper rifle, maybe if it's a more powerful gun, it might jerk slightly. There might be slightly more recoil, which means that your shot may twitch a little bit. But you're aiming steady with your scope. 
you don't look like you're completely drunk while trying to aim your sniper rifle at the beginning of the game, like you do in the first Mass Effect. They rejiggered it so that the shooter gameplay had primacy, and while there were still stats, those stats were less impactful on the moment-to-moment combat. They also streamlined the level system immensely. The first game had 60 levels, and you had a ton of different abilities, and you would get several ability points per level. I say several because it changes over time. In the early levels, you get like four, and then it starts going down until you only get one. You have dozens and dozens of bars that you can place these in. You have your stats for your weapons, your assault rifle, your sniper rifle. You have stats for your different abilities. You have some other more general stats like fitness or first aid that affect your ability to heal or how many hit points you have. Each one of these tracks has like something like 15 spots along the bar that you can put points into. Takes one point for each. You can't max out all of them. It it makes you make trade-offs to customize your character like RPGs often do, but... You have tons of places to put these points, and you're constantly getting points, and you're making these constantly making these little changes to your character. Very finicky RPG kind of stuff. In this one, you have a very small number of areas that you can put stats into. There are only 30 levels, and each ability only has four levels of upgrade, but the cost goes up. So the level one abilities cost one point, two cost two points, three cost three points, four cost four points. It's much more streamlined, and it does affect things like how much damage you do and your hit points and the effectiveness of your abilities, but it's not so much affecting, you know, now you can aim your gun slightly better than you could one level ago. It's like, you know, that kind of really finicky stuff's out. So they really streamline all of the RPG mechanics. They also make it quicker to access abilities so that you're not pausing the game so much to access your abilities. And they did make a change for balance. In the first game, all of your abilities were on separate cooldown timers, which meant if you were a biotic, you could string together a bunch of biotic abilities and just make the entire combat system a joke. They changed to a global cooldown in Mass Effect 2, where all of your abilities are on a shared cooldown timer so that you couldn't do that anymore. It was ridiculously overpowered. The combat is a lot more fluid and a lot more natural in the second game. They also made getting in and out of cover less finicky. It was very easy to accidentally enter cover and exit cover in the first game when you didn't want to. They tried to uh, improve on that as well. So they completely changed the combat mechanics, in my opinion, for the better. And I think in most people's opinion, for the better. Some people complain that they basically stripped out all of the RPG and made it a shooter. They didn't strip out all the RPG elements, but I can understand where those critics would be coming from, because there are a lot fewer finicky RPG mechanics. But it just makes sense. The other thing they did, and this was also a balance thing, is they added an ammo system. You know, if you're not familiar with the games, you might be thinking to yourself now, they added an ammo system? It was a shooter and you didn't have ammo like, you know, everything back to Wolfenstein 3D has ammo, (laughs) you know, and games before that, too. I'm just being dramatic. Well, no, because they came up with an in-universe reason where ammo doesn't matter. Instead of having ammo be the thing that limits your ability to use your weapons, they had overheating become the thing that limits the use of your weapons, which also limits the use of weapons in real life as well, in fairness. But basically, your weapons would all have a rating for their heat absorption level. 
and that would determine how many times you could fire it before it would completely overheat. And if it completely overheated, you would be prevented from using that weapon for several seconds until it cooled down. And you had a little bar that measured how much heat was being generated. In theory, the way the system worked then is you had to be kind of conservative and do burst fire to make sure that you didn't fire for so long a period that your weapon overheated and you had to stop. So, you know, fire a few shots as that heat meter trickles up and then stop for a couple of seconds because it goes down really quickly when you're not firing. Stop for a couple of seconds so that the heat goes down and, and then continue. In practical effect, just like being able to chain powers ended up being broken, it turned out that this system was broken because if you focused on using like a rapid fire weapon like an assault rifle and the weapons also had mods that you could install on them to change their statistics, including increasing their heat absorption rate, you could basically create a weapon by a certain point in the game where you had high enough level weapons and, and mods to really get the heat absorption down. You could basically create a weapon that was never going to overheat on you, and then you could just ignore all the intricacies of the combat system and just charge down a corridor holding down the trigger and not even bother aiming because not every shot would hit, but enough of your shots would hit that you didn't have to worry about anything anymore because you never ran out of ammo. So again, you know, these people were RPG designers first and foremost. They were not shooting game designers first and foremost. Mass Effect was really the first time that they were creating a shooting game, even if it was still primarily an RPG. They thought they were being cool eliminating their ammo system, but it turned out that all they were doing was breaking things. <laughs> Though they were still going to use the same system in the second game. It was actually one of the developers went off on his own because he was unsatisfied with the combat mechanics and created his own ammo system. Then went to his lead and was like, hey, I created this ammo system. I think it really works. And his lead was like, no, we don't want ammo. We came up with this great reason that we don't have to use ammo. And that's cool. And we're cool. And we don't want to do this. He was basically like, well, just play it. He's like, okay. So he played it. It's like, oh, well, this actually changes the entire tenor of combat and makes it better. Let's bring this to Casey. Casey Hudson, you know, the head of the whole project. And Casey was the same way. He's like, no, no, we came up with this great system for no ammo and it's great and we love it and we don't want to do this. And then they're like, well, just play it. And then he played and was like, oh, yeah, actually, I guess this does kind of make combat better. So, yeah, let's do that. So they added an ammo system and they still kept it in-universe because they'd already come up with an in-universe explanation for why you didn't need ammo. Basically, with the way the technology works, you just have this gigantic metal cube that is loaded into your weapon. Your weapon is able to shear off just a teeny tiny bit of that cube. And then there's a miniature mass accelerator, you know, that uses the mass effect that basically accelerates that thing up to an incredibly high speed by lowering the mass because force is mass times acceleration. So, you know, they greatly increase the acceleration by lowering the mass. You can have a really, really tiny piece of metal that is very, very lethal and tears a humongous hole in you because it's going so fast. So because of that, you can get like thousands of shots out of this one metallic cube. So ammo is rendered meaningless. They didn't go back on that in the second game because this is a game that's about being consistent in their kind of hard sci-fi world. But what they said is, well, basically, the Geth, the Cylon-like race in the first game that I didn't really talk about in the context of the first game, but they were the primary antagonists. Saren, the agent of the Reapers, was allied with uh, the Geth, 
which kind of worshipped the Reapers as gods because the Geth are artificial entities, machine entities, and the Reapers are super advanced machine entities. Though the Geth were created within this cycle, so they're not as advanced as the Reapers, hence they see them as gods. They basically said, yeah, the Geth had more sustained firepower than we did because they used disposable heat sinks. So rather than having to wait for their heat sinks to cool down, they would just pop out a heat sink and pop another one in and keep up a sustained fire. So instead of bullets being the ammo, heat sinks become the ammo in the second game. So it's still keeping with this idea of heat generation as the problem, but twisting it to be an ammo system instead. That's kind of everything they did on the combat side. It really did fundamentally change the game. And the first Mass Effect game, even in the Legendary Edition, where they made a few changes to bring it slightly more in line with the other two games, combat in the first Mass Effect game is just rough. It is not fun to replay the combat in the first Mass Effect. There are things in the first Mass Effect that are fun to revisit, but combat ain't one of them. The combat in Mass Effect 2 is so much better. It feels so much better. So they did a great job there. The other problem, like I said, was the side quest problem. The fact that the side quest didn't integrate into the overarching game well, and that the side quests were very, very repetitive. Solving the second problem was simple enough. They just resolved not to do that again. They made sure that every quest took place in a unique, bespoke environment. Every planet had a unique, bespoke environment tailored specifically to what's going on there. You know, I think they were helped in that by A, they had a better understanding of the engine by this point, because they'd been working in it for years already. And also B, since they'd already done a lot of their basic asset creation, because they reused assets from the first game and the second game, they had the freedom and the time amongst their art team to do more bespoke locations. So yeah, first of all, they resolved that they would get rid of that. And they also got rid of the vehicle stuff. As DLC, they released a small number of vehicle missions using a different vehicle that handled completely differently, but they got rid of the Mako because nobody liked those controls. And they got rid of the need for side quests to include exploration everywhere. The side quests would just be focused on getting you right where you need to be and getting right into the action. So that was easy. But the other aspect, how do you make the side quests relevant when you have this galaxy-spanning threat that you're also having to combat? The answer they came up with was basically, make the side quests the main quest. What I mean by that is... Instead of just having the main quest consist of we're taking our team to these specific plot worlds and having them play through the plot worlds, let's have the plot of the game being recruiting the squad. Largely influenced by the movie The Dirty Dozen, they decided that your character would put together this ragtag team of mercenaries, many of them near-do-wells, second episode has to be darker, from the fringes of the galaxy, to go on this, what's called a suicide mission, because they're, they don't think there's much hope of you coming back, to stop this race called the Collectors, which has just been introduced, it wasn't in the first game, that are in some way allied with the Reapers. They live in this one system behind this one relay, mass relay, which are these things that allow you to travel around the galaxy without worrying about things like relativity, and no ship has ever successfully gone through it. It's impossible to get in there, but somehow the collectors do, and they come out of it periodically to make strange deals for genetic material. The collectors need to be stopped, but we need a squad to do it, and we can't just go straight there because we have to figure out how to go there and not die. So it's not like the first game where, you know, Saren's doing what he's doing no matter what. 
it's not like they track the time in game, but just as a hypothetical, we can't just take a year doing a bunch of side quests when Saren, focused on his one objective, can get that objective done in three months. The whole galaxy dies because we want to go and stop a crime syndicate somewhere. Good job, team. This time, there's a threat that's established at the beginning, but it's not a threat we can confront right away. In order to confront it, we have to build up our resources, not just build a team, not just build the loyalty of the team, but also harvest resources to upgrade our ship. Because by the way, at the beginning of the game, the original Normandy is destroyed and it's not a fair fight. It's just completely demolished at the very beginning. Then this organization that I'll talk about in a second builds a, a new Normandy based on the old one, but clearly it needs upgrades or it'll just be shredded by the collectors as well. So you have to go gather resources on planets, which makes you explore the galaxy like you did in the first game, and you have to go on all of these what would have been considered side quests in the first game, but are actually, in this instance, kind of main quests to recruit your entire squad and then make them devoted to you and devoted to the mission. Otherwise, when you do finally do the final mission, your mission will fail. So by gathering resources, you have to go around and launching probes at a bunch of planets. <laughs> More on that later. So that's the exploration aspect. And then sometimes when you reach a planet and you scan it, you'll discover an anomaly on that planet that you can then go and investigate. And then that becomes a side quest. These anomaly side quests are very brief side quests. They're, they're quickies. So it makes sense that you just touch down, see what the strange anomaly is, do the thing, and then leave while you're doing your exploration for the resources that you need to upgrade your ship or you're going to die. It all flows back in. Then you have the missions where you recruit the squad members. There are a dozen squad members. Two of them were DLC that you just get automatically if you purchase the DLC. So there are 10 recruitment missions for squad members. Then each of the squad members has a quote-unquote loyalty rating, which is not a bar. It's just are they loyal or are they not loyal? And basically each of them has unfinished business in their own lives that if they don't take care of, they'll be distracted for the mission. So the loyalty missions are optional, and most of the recruitment missions are optional too, because you only need, you know, a certain number to technically do the mission. But if you don't have loyal squad members at certain points in the final mission, if you choose squad members for certain tasks, they may die during those missions, and if enough of them die, then you fail the whole thing. You have to do some of the loyalty missions, but you don't necessarily have to do all of the loyalty missions. So that's, it's still side quest content in that sense but it ties directly into the main story instead of being completely divorced from it. So you have the 10 recruitment missions, you have the 12 loyalty missions, and then you still have a couple, a uh, few plot advancing missions in between that trigger at various points as well. So everything is much better integrated. Story, exploration, and side quests are all much better integrated, and all of the side quests are unique. They're not repetitive environments. You can already see this is leaps and bounds beyond the first game in a lot of areas, and it's still providing all of the same great other stuff. There is a bit of a disconnect, and this is where we're already going to start seeing some of the problems here with the fact that they don't have things planned out all the way. There is a bit of a disconnect in some of the plotting. Because at the end of the first game, like at the very end, it, it has this uplifting ending where like whether you saved the council or not, whoever's left alive, whether it's just the humans or it's the Citadel Council as well, 
everyone is rah, rah, rah that, okay, yeah, shoot, these things are real. One of them just attacked us. We have to unite the galaxy. We have to get ready. We have to stand firm. And together we will confront the Reaper threat. Then I think as part of deciding to make the second game the dark chapter of the trilogy, and because they wanted to focus on this more personal mission of recruiting these characters and interacting with these characters, they decided they had to back off from that. So at the start of the second game, it's like, oh, well, yeah, uh, just kidding. They backslid, the exact word used in the game. The council has backslid on the Reaper threat. There wasn't much of Sovereign, that's the name of the Reaper that attacked the Citadel, there wasn't much of Sovereign left to analyze, and they've convinced themselves that it was really just Geth technology, and it was just Saren and the Geth after all. There's no Reaper threat. Shepard, you're still crazy. I don't know what you're talking about. Now, there are some people that believe in the Reaper threat and are still working to combat it, but it seemed like the galaxy was going to come together and start preparing for the threat at the end of the first game, and then they don't. They blow up your ship, so your crew is scattered because they don't want to deal with big choices like your romances. They don't have a lot of the squad mates from the first game come back. The collectors are not even hinted at in the first game, so they kind of come out of nowhere and it's like, oh yeah, now there's this other threat, the collectors. And it's like, okay, well, where were they in the first game? I mean, if Saren's working for the Reapers and his Geth are working for the Reapers and the collectors are also agents of the Reapers, which they are then why weren't the collectors involved? If they have this ship that can blow things to pieces, why didn't they use that on the Normandy in the first game? You know, you can ride around anything you want. I mean, plot holes only exist if you don't have the imagination to come up with a convoluted explanation as to why something's not a plot hole. But they didn't really try to answer any of those questions. It's, it's just, okay, now the collectors are the threat. Uh, uh, oh, oh, the, the collectors? Who are they? Oh, yeah, they, they've, they've been here the whole time. It's like, oh, they, they have? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They were just off over here doing something else. Uh, what were they doing? I can't tell you that. Secret. Uh, oh, okay. Dark, nefarious things. That's right. Too horrible for you to understand. But I want to know. Too horrible. Way too horrible. That's right. Mass Effect 2 has a good plot. I mean, like, the in-game plot of stopping the collectors is very good. The characters are really good. A lot of people have complained about their squad mates, a lot of their squad mates being gone in the second game, but then they fell in love with some of the other squad mates. I mean, we're just gonna put Morden singing Modern Scientist Solarian into the show notes so that you understand how lovable some of these characters are, and because I just want Morden singing in our show notes. Singing Scientist Solarian. The gameplay is excellent. And the contained story within Mass Effect 2 is also, in my opinion, excellent. But already there are some problems, some cracks starting to show. It's like, okay, a lot of the big decisions that we made in the first game are either not impacting the second game at all, or are only impacting the second game in very minor ways. And at the time, they explained that as, you know, it, you know, we need to set some stuff aside and save it for the third game. And so, you know, you give them the benefit of the doubt on that. But you're already starting to see some signs of, can they actually pull off this massive idea that you're making decisions that affect the entire galaxy from the very beginning of game one, and it all pays off spectacularly in game three? We're already seeing some cracks starting to show. You don't necessarily know their cracks at the time, but... They're there. I'm giving one-to-one odds that this does not pay off. <laughs> the other thing that is kind of a problem here is that 
most of the core team remains the same throughout the trilogy. But one person that does not is the lead writer, Drew Karpishan. The reason for this is Drew is becoming a very accomplished writer. He's good. I mean, he's no longer a video game writer now. He, he writes novels. And he has had some of them published, so he is not in a mean mood. Bonus points if you get that reference. So he's becoming recognized as probably the best writer they have. And Bioware is about to embark on a little MMO called Star Wars The Old Republic. This is a massive project that needs a massive amount of writing. And by the way, Drew Carpishan, before being lead writer on Mass Effect, was lead writer on the first Knights of the Old Republic. So he's very in tune with all of that. They send Drew off to the new Bioware Austin to work on the Old Republic MMO. He is with Mass Effect 2 long enough to do the plot of it. Like, most of the plotting and big story beats and all of that are done before he leaves Mass Effect 2. But he will not be the lead writer for Mass Effect 3. Now, the writer replacing him is still going to be someone who was on the project from the beginning, a guy by the name of Mac Walters. Because Drew was the lead writer, but he was never the only writer. One thing that Bioware does very early is they don't just use a writer on a game. They use a team of writers. They have a lead writer, and then they have other writers under him. So Mac Walters has been working on the game from the beginning. He started out as a modder, as a lot of people did in this time period, and he had been writing modules for Neverwinter Nights, Bioware's game, and that came to their attention and ended up being hired. We're going to see a shift between Drew and Mac, and it's not necessarily a shift in the ability to write the moment-to-moment kind of dialogue stuff. Mac Walters can also write, and he's been writing this entire time. But the game started as really hard sci-fi. All of the elements of it were in a very hard sci-fi kind of place. I'm not sure, and this is partially speculation. I mean, it's not like Mac himself has said this or Drew has said this, and, you know, Drew's not going to say anything against Mac in public. But I get the sense that the hard sci-fi thing was more Drew and less Mac. Because it's not so prevalent in Mass Effect 2, but especially by Mass Effect 3, it feels like we've gotten away from hard sci-fi explanations for things going on, and we're getting more in the realm of space fantasy. That is really a bit of a disconnect. I think the project suffered by Drew leaving it to go do the Old Republic. Mass Effect 2, before we go on with that a little bit, is a massive success. It has a good story. It introduces an interesting new faction. Instead of working with the Alliance and the Citadel this time, because you actually die at the beginning of the game, doesn't get darker than, than that in a trilogy, and you're brought back to life in a scientifically believable way. Essentially, you're only mostly dead. Mostly dead? Much different than all dead. Yeah, because you die in the vacuum of space. So, like, you're dead, your body function stops, but you're also immediately frozen in the vacuum of space, so your, your tissue's not decaying. You know, it's, it's a massive project. It takes two years. It costs billions of credits, and it's using all sorts of advanced nanomachines. But, you know, it's not like they're just sticking them in a Lazarus pit. That part of it, they are still trying to do some scientific basis for it. 
But you're brought back to life by a group that does care about the threat called Cerberus. Now, Cerberus is in the first game, but they were actually mostly cut from the first game. There there were going to be a series of side quests that culminated in dealing with this human supremacy group that was doing lots of experiments on humans. You were supposed to see signs of their experiments throughout the game, and then you were going to go to this space station called Misery, which was their headquarters, and like put an end to all of this. They didn't have time to do Misery, so they cut that out. But they left some of the stuff they'd already done in the game. So Cerberus is kind of there, but it's kind of disjointed. There's a quest chain, but it's a very disjointed quest chain. And the reason for that is it was really half-finished content that they kind of left in as a bonus. So they decided to take the Cerberus concept and make them front and center. They wanted this to be the darker game in the series, so they wanted you to work for an organization that you have less certainty is actually a benign organization. Like the Citadel Council in the first game, the Citadel Galactic government has galactic peace and the best interests of the galaxy at heart. The conflict is, are they holding back humans too much, or should humans push forward more, and are they a bit too much of an asshole as they go about their business? But there's no question that they fundamentally do want what's best for the galaxy. Cerberus is a human supremacy group that has engaged in terrorist acts in the past and which believes in human dominance of the galaxy. They're not for eradicating all other aliens. They're not like completely, let's be genocidal. They want humans to be in charge like you said, kind of Terran Empire versus Federation. But they are one of the only groups that are actually taking the Reaper threat seriously. So they bring Shepard back to life, they bring him a new ship, and want to partner with him on stopping the Collectors and trying to end the Reaper threat. That adds an interesting new dynamic, and uh, the leader of this group called the Elusive Man, uh, voiced by Martin Sheen, is also a 24 callback. They base him on Jack Bauer's brother, Graham Bauer, from 24, who is one of these characters that, you know, is is working behind the scenes for his own agenda and believes that his cause is just, but is willing to do a lot of harm out there to reach his ends. The ends justify the means, and the means are, I get to live in the world I want to live in, kind of thing. Everything's more ambiguous. You're on the fringes of society. You're dealing a lot more with criminals and cartels and mercenaries because it's the dark chapter. Cerberus is compelling. The elusive man's compelling. Your new squad mates are compelling. The story progression is nice. The individual conflicts that the characters have are great. Mass Effect 2 is a pretty unqualified success. Like I said, it is not only near universally considered the best game in the trilogy, but it often shows up on best game of all time lists as well. BioWare has also undergone some other changes during this period. Well, remember that the first game was Xbox exclusive initially, within a PC version released a year later, but it was not on PlayStation because Microsoft was the publisher. At that time, BioWare was an independent studio. Well, partway through the development of Mass Effect, BioWare was getting into a real crunch because they were working on some expensive games like Jade Empire and Mass Effect, and it was not entirely clear that they were going to get enough return on these games to actually have made it all worthwhile. It it looked like the studio was going to perhaps enter a cash crunch. So they ended up entering this interesting relationship with this essentially venture capital firm called Elevation Partners. What Elevation wanted to do 
was it wanted to buy up a bunch of independent studios. It's kind of similar to what Embracer Group has tried to do more recently, uh, though on a much smaller scale. They wanted to buy up existing developers to kind of create a new publishing powerhouse in the video game space. So they purchased BioWare and another studio called Pandemic as the start of this project. This didn't impact the first Mass Effect or it being published by Microsoft and all of that, because this is a new thing that was kind of just starting up. Well, then just like with the Embracer Group, uh, which is currently imploding today, this ended up not working out so well in practice. So it was good for BioWare in the short term because it gave them the funding to keep making their games like Mass Effect. But Elevation Partners decided that this was going to be way too expensive, that they couldn't really do what they wanted to do. So they decided to get out. A month before Mass Effect was released, Elevation Partners sold BioWare and Pandemic to Electronic Arts. The first game in the series was published by Microsoft, but that was not going to be the case going forward. EA was not going to have Microsoft publish one of their games, and they were certainly not going to be console exclusive. Unlike the first Mass Effect, Mass Effect 2 was published by Electronic Arts and was going to be available on both the 360 and the PS3. It had a much broader sales reach, obviously, than the first game because it was going to be platform agnostic. The first game had gotten some good buzz. So the second game was also a hit. I don't have any sales figures, unfortunately, so I can't compare it, but it was definitely a success and so well regarded and gave them a lot of momentum going into Mass Effect 3. The hype for Mass Effect 3 was through the roof. Mass Effect was released in 2007. Mass Effect 2 was released in 2010. Mass Effect 3 was planned to be released in 2011, just a year later. That's already should be setting off alarm bells. It took them four years to make the first Mass Effect. Now, not all of that was building the game. Some of that was building the world concepts and whatnot. It took them four years. It took them three years, even when they already had all the groundwork laid. Not really three years, more like two and a half years because it was released at the very beginning of 2010. But it took them two and a half years to do the second game, even though they had already laid a bunch of the groundwork in developing the first game. Now they're saying they're going to have the third game out just a year later. And I imagine that was pressure from EA. I don't know that for certain. But I think, you know, they were trying to keep this all contained on one console generation The next console generation was coming, and I think there was probably a lot of feeling of pressure of having to get this out and striking while the iron was still hot. That's already a warning sign. They had a new lead writer who clearly had a slightly different philosophy on things. I think that was also a warning sign. And then the other warning sign is just, it was so built up. Because the second game was so beloved, and the world was so beloved, and everyone had grown so attached to their individual shepherds, and the choices they had made. BioWare and EA were promising that all of that was going to pay off, that all of your choices were going to matter in the final game. It just didn't come together. Now, Mass Effect 3 is still a very good game. And I think even most of its critics consider it to be a very good game right up until the end, which is where it's mostly seen as falling apart. 
they had some good ideas. They continued to refine the combat. They brought back some of the RPG elements. People had said they'd strayed too far into a shooter. They're like, fine, we'll bring some elements back. They added another 30 levels. If you played Mass Effect 2, you import at level 30 and have your, some of your skills already. If not, you start level 60. They kept all of the skills from the second game. Unlike the transition between the first and the second game, you're basically continuing as the exact same character with the exact same skills and everything between two and three. But they added additional skills. So rather than going from level four in your existing skills to level eight in your existing skills, they added additional skills to start leveling up. And then they added variety. In the second game, when you reach level four, the final level, you chose between two options. Do I want increases in this or do I want increases in that? In Mass Effect 3, they extended that through all four of the new levels, where each time you go up a level, you choose between things. So they added more stats, more customization in Mass Effect 3 without sacrificing the shooter elements that they had brought to the fore in Mass Effect 2. You can still aim your gun just fine, no matter what you've put into what skills. They had really streamlined the inventory in Mass Effect 2, which had pissed off a lot of the RPG fans, because fiddling with your inventory and min-maxing little fiddly stats is something that a certain segment of the RPG community just loves doing for some reason. No judgment, but also a little judgment. Sorry. In that game, everybody had their own inventory slots, and you would equip a weapon in each inventory slot, and not only did you have different types of guns with different stats— but then you would find more advanced versions. So, you know, the Lancer assault rifle, there was a Lancer 1, 2, 3, all the way through 10, each slightly more powerful. And then you could put mods on them, and those mods also had levels 1 through 10. The inventory system was a nightmare. It was a mess. It was a disaster trying to keep track of the inventory. Everybody hates the inventory system. Even the ones that wish that they had kept the RPG aspects of the inventory system still hated the way the inventory system was in the first game. It needed to be streamlined. But they basically decided that since they were going to have 12 squad mates this time, you know, in the first game you had six, plus yourself, so seven characters total. They're doubling the squad mates in the second game. They're going up to 12, 13 characters total when you count your own character. They decided that everybody having their own separate inventory was going to be too much of a nightmare across 12 characters. So they decided to get rid of that, and instead you would still find weapons, and you would still upgrade those weapons. But instead, it's just once you discovered a particular weapon or bought a particular weapon, everyone just had access to that weapon. And you could choose which weapon each character was using. You could still customize, so not every character had to use the same submachine gun if you didn't want to for whatever reason. You didn't have to individually find five different copies of a weapon to have five different characters be able to have it equipped at the same time. They basically got rid of the modding entirely. There were upgrades you could purchase to increase damage, accuracy, etc., but there weren't mods that you could put on the weapon to increase any of that stuff. So they streamlined that altogether. In Mass Effect 3, they slightly unstreamlined it. They still had a uniform inventory system where you didn't have to buy individual weapons for each member of your party. But they brought mods back. They simplified mods a bit, but they brought them back. And they also brought back weapon levels. But instead of finding individual weapons, like you find a Lancer 1 in the field, and then later on you find a Lancer 3, and you have to switch from your Lancer 1 to your Lancer 3, they just had you do paid upgrades, so you could upgrade all of the weapons between levels 1 and 10 by paying to upgrade them, but they weren't separate weapons. The Lancer 2 takes the place of the Lancer 1 instead of existing in your inventory next to the Lancer 1. 
they struck probably their best balance between shooter and RPG. If Mass Effect was way too much of an RPG and Mass Effect 2 was way too much of a shooter, Mass Effect 3 found a sweet spot. Now, there's some things about the way the combat flows that I prefer in 2 personally to 3. It's not like it's a perfect progression forward. There's no doubt that they were able to keep their shooter elements intact while bringing some RPG elements back that they had taken out. That's all good. You know, a lot of the missions and the dialogue and everything are good as well. But the problem is there was just too much stuff to carry forward for all of it to have an impact. Now, they carried over some things very well. What they decided to do is, okay, let's focus on a couple of major, major decisions from past games that we can really give our all to. That's what Walters and the others have said. This is not me speculating. This is what they decided to do. Let's choose a couple of really impactful beats from the first two games and provide them really detailed resolution as the main part of the plot. So they did that. They decided to do that with the Krogan genophage, which we mentioned earlier, the sterility of the Krogan species. You can decide whether to cure the genophage or not cure the genophage. And if not cure the genophage, also trick the Krogan into thinking you did cure the genophage. The way that plays out is very different based on what you did in the other games. So they had had resource gathering in the first game where you had to probe planets for resources. Again, as with the first game and side quests, they didn't take into account completionists. You see, planets had levels of mineral richness. They would go from rich to moderate to poor to depleted. Some would start at a lower level, obviously. They didn't all start at rich. But as you probed the planet, that level would go down until the world was depleted. You don't need to harvest nearly all of the resources you can from every planet in order to get the upgrades you need to beat the game. So they thought to themselves that people would just, you know, they'd do a little mining here, a little mining there, and get the resources they needed to finish the game, and they'd be done. But they didn't take into account completionist players. (laughs) I will have all the resources. I will become tycoon of all the resources. Exactly. It's like, you gave me levels of resources on these planets, which means that there's a finite level, which means I can drain them, which means I must drain them. The probe game, you'd be in a planet screen, you'd have a scanner, and then you'd have to rotate your scanner around the planet, watching this reading gauge for places with high mineral content, and then launch a probe there. You had a finite number of probes, you had to go buy replacements every so often. So the probe game was just really tedious. Now, if you had done it as they thought you would do it, it would have been a lot less tedious, though still a little tedious. You always have to assume players are going to just do everything. It was still a failure of design. In this game, they decided to replace the gathering of resources and the recruitment of squad members with the gathering of war assets. So in the second game, you're very narrowly getting resources together that allow you alone with your squad to defeat the collectors. This time, you're going all across the galaxy to gather resources for your cause. This can be minerals, it can be technology, it can be elite units, it can be whole races and their fleets. Like, you're gathering all of these resources from around the galaxy to stop the Reapers, which have already invaded, and to make it even more impactful, have already come and are starting to tear apart Earth and harvest all the people on Earth. So it's similar to the second game where they integrate everything by having a big bad at the end you have to fight, but making you do all of these little missions first before you have the power to fight the big bad. 
It's just this time it's on a galaxy-wide scale. We're recruiting whole fleets and nations instead of a single ship scale where you're recruiting squad mates. Some of the big decisions you have to make in this game impact the war assets you get, and you have to have a certain number of war assets by the end of the game or the mission will fail. With the genophage, the Krogans obviously want their genophage cured, and they're not going to be part of the mission unless the genophage is cured first. The Salarians have the ability to cure the genophage, but they do not want to. They are the ones that created the genophage in the first place. They're very much about mathematics and looking at the future. They are very convinced, based on their modeling, that if the genophage is cured and the Krogan reproductive levels return to their pre-genophage levels, that they'll just swarm the galaxy again, and there'll be another Krogan rebellions, and billions will die, and they'll just have to sterilize them or eradicate them all over again. They see the genophage as a mercy, something that allowed them to allow the Krogans to continue to exist without having to eradicate them like the Rachni were eradicated. You know, these are the big kind of moral decisions that the entire Mass Effect series is all about. The Salarians absolutely do not want it cured, and they basically say, if you cure the genophage, we will not help you. We'll just let the galaxy burn. So you have a few different options. You can refuse the genophage cure, and the Salarians join you, and the Krogans don't. You could cure the genophage, the Krogans join you, and the Salarians don't. Or you can pretend to cure the genophage and get the support of both the Krogans and the Salarians. But... And this is where it gets really interesting based on your past decisions. The leader of the Krogan is either Rex, your squad mate from the first game, or his brother Reeve, if you killed Rex in the first game. Rex is more pragmatic. He is a Krogan, but he is also able to think big picture. He's not just all about aggression. He believes in the Krogan integrating better into galactic society and not swarming over the entire galaxy again if the genophage is cured. Reeve is far more militant, far more stereotypical aggressive Krogan, and you get the sense throughout the game that he absolutely will go back to the Krogan old ways and start pillaging the entire galaxy. Depending on whether you saved Rex or not has huge implications for what the future of the galaxy will look like if you cure the genophage. If it's Reeve, it really could lead to another Krogan Rebellions. If it's Rex, it still might, because you can't predict what's going to happen hundreds of years in the future, but there's a slightly better chance that that won't be the result. Then, the other wrinkle here is that Reeve is dumber than Rex. If you fake the genophage cure, Reeve never figures it out, and you get the Krogan and the Salarian assets. If you saved Rex, and Rex is in charge of the Krogan, later in the game he figures it out. Oh no. Comes and confronts you very madly, and then you have to kill him, and you lose the Krogan support. So you still lose it. Yeah, you still get the Salarians, but you no longer get— So you can't get both the Salarian and the Krogan support unless you fake a genophage cure, and Reeve is in charge because Rex died in the first game. This is the complex decision-making that if these kind of decisions played out across everything you made, Mass Effect 3 would have been incredible. Because then the other thing is, to refuse to do the genophage cure or to fake it, Moradin is the one that comes up with it, our, our scientist Salarian, who everybody loved in the second game, who sings Gilbert and Sullivan patter songs, who is fantastic. He was actually part of a mission to refresh the genophage because the Krogan were starting to evolve in a manner that resisted the genophage because it's a, it's a genetic attack. They had to do a refresh on it to take into account Krogan mutation. 
then he's become guilty about it. So in the second game, another member of his team is trying to work on a cure for the genophage, but his methods are very barbaric. So you help Morden and his loyalty mission stop this guy. Then you have the option of keeping his research or destroying his research. Again, the implications of, you know, do we cure the Krogan or not? Moradin feels guilty about the genophage now, and he's the one that creates the cure in the third game. I did this the first time. I did the fake the genophage cure the first time I played through the game. You know, I didn't spoil myself. I had no walkthroughs. Morden's smart. Morden is with you there, and he figures it out. You have to kill Morden to do this, and it's awful because you shoot him in the back, and then he's crawling towards the thing to try to deploy the cure. And, oh, I felt terrible. Games don't normally make me emotional, but I felt terrible about having to kill Moradin. And I was like, oh my god, was that worth it? This is the kind of full-life consequences that should have happened over the entire game. And then, on top of that... The genophage cure was actually derived from one female Krogan that survived the experiments that Morden's teammate did in the second game. She's also a more pragmatic individual and is more about the Krogan being more about the galactic community. In the second game, as I said, you have the option to save or destroy Malin, the other teammate's research. In the third game, you can cure the genophage whether you have that research or not. But if you save the research, the Krogan female lives. If you didn't save the research in the second game, the Krogan female dies. Having that research as a head start gave them enough information to help save her. Here's choices across all of the games that have a galaxy-wide impact mattering in this one moment in the third game. That's fantastic. That's the vision right there. But they only did it for this one moment and maybe a few others. They did it for this, and they did it for the Geth-Quarian conflict, because we learn more about the Geth in the second game. It turns out they're not just evil Cylons out to eradicate everything. They actually don't really care about eradicating everything. The Quarians turned on them first and decided they were a threat and started killing them, so they fought back in self-defense, and they've basically stayed to themselves ever since they won that war. The Geth that followed Saren were actually heretics. They weren't part of the main Geth collective. So it turns out it's much more complex. You have a choice to make on how the Quarian-Geth conflict ends. Do the Geth destroy the Quarian? Do the Quarian destroy the Geth? Do they figure out how to live in harmony? Decisions you made in the past games have some impact on how that plays out as well. Those are the two big central conflicts they resolve, but the others, they completely drop the ball. In the first game, kill, save the council. That's a big decision. It has no impact. The counselors are different. You know, they're different actual people if you didn't save them, obviously, because the old ones are dead and they have slightly different personalities. No change to the plot, no change to war assets, no change to anything. Plays out the exact same way. The first game is also very big on the theme of will humans dominate the galaxy or will they join the galactic community? Terran Empire versus Federation. Completely dropped. Like in the first game, if the console dies, you can even create a new human council that has no aliens on it, that is dominated by the humans. Completely dropped. No mention of any of that human domination stuff ever again. They punt it in two. There are oblique references to it in two, but it's not central to the plot. And then they just drop it in three. It's not there at all. In the first game, you have a choice of which human joins the council. It can either be the conniving politician Udina, who's the ambassador, or it can be the heroic 
loyal mentor military figure Captain Anderson, who believes strongly in the galactic community and standing up to the Reaper threat. They're kind of the paragon and renegade choices. They're very different people with very different personalities and very different approaches to getting things done. Doesn't have any impact at all. They did tie-in materials. You know, they did books and comic books that tied into the games. And in those, they decided that canonically, Anderson was still in the military, promoted to Admiral, but still in the military. So in the second game, your choice of counselor has an impact in the sense that you have one meeting with whoever the ambassador is, and it's either Udina or Anderson, depending on who you chose. But then no matter what, by the third game, because they did this tie-in stuff where Anderson was in the military, Udina is the ambassador, Anderson is an admiral in the military, your decision is completely wiped out. They don't pretend it never happened. You know, it says in the Codex that Anderson got sick of being counselor and so resigned and rejoined the military and Udina became counselor. They don't just pretend your choice never happened, but your choice has zero impact. Zero. They dropped the ball on a lot of the big choices. Some of the smaller plot lines play out in very nice and meaningful ways, too. We don't have time to get into all of those. It's not like nothing plays out. But they dropped the ball on a lot of the big choices. But then the big problem is that they gave up on their hard sci-fi entirely. Drew Karpishan had an idea for why the Reapers did what they did. Basically, the manipulation of Mass Effect fields, which is what makes all of this technology stuff possible, is deeply intertwined with manipulation of dark energy. However, the use of dark energy is slowly destroying the galaxy. It causes stars to age faster than they should, and it's going to slowly cause the entire galaxy to fall apart. The Reaper's job is whenever the species of the galaxy are getting to the point where their use of dark energy and mass effect fields is going to become a threat to the future of the galaxy, it's their job to come in, wipe out all advanced civilizations, and let the next race have their moment in the sun. So the universe gets to continue to exist but any individual race has to be stopped from destroying the galaxy. So the Reapers are, in a way, the good guys. They're working for the greater good. But obviously, if it's your cycle to go extinct, that is no consolation to you. As Drew himself says, they didn't plan out a lot in advance on all of these games. Just because that was the idea at the time that they were writing Mass Effect 2 doesn't mean it would have survived to Mass Effect 3. They could have come up with something else. But the important thing is it follows the similar themes of the first two games, which is that even the evil forces aren't as evil as they appear. There's a lot of gray. It's not black and white. You don't have the case of mustache twirling villains where it goes, <laughs> I'm just going to blow up this train track because it's fun. <laughs> exactly. And it's about how everyone is just doing the best they can in the situations they find themselves in. The Reapers believe this is the only way to stop all life in the galaxy from going extinct. So the ends justify the means. Always remember, everyone who you think is a bad guy, no one is a bad guy in their own head or from their own position. They're always the good guy. They're either a minority pushing against big evil empire or whatever, whatever they think of as the big evil empire. That's true in today's cases in world politics. It's scary. Yeah, and you know, and occasionally you do have people that are just literally insane. That's where serial killers, some, I mean, you know, serial killers aren't working for the greater good. 
they're doing what they do because their mind is broken. So it's okay to sometimes have an insane villain that just wants to wipe everything out as long as you credibly establish their insanity. Yeah, you shouldn't just have a I'm evil, so I must do evil things kind of villain. Mac Walters and his writing team on Mass Effect 3 did not go that route. Instead, they went with magical hand-waving. He really wanted to focus the third game on Shepard's personal struggle with the weight of all of the decisions he has to make and how that's affecting him psychologically, which is a real shift because they didn't do anything in the first two games to establish that Shepard was too bothered by any of that. I mean, yeah, he's sad when, like, his squad mate dies or whatever, but he's not moping, he's not suffering from PTSD, and... I mean, there's nothing wrong with depicting those things. There's nothing wrong with a hero that also suffers. The problem is they haven't established Commander Shepard as that kind of hero in the first two games. Plus, Shepard's personality has to this point been shaped by your decisions and how you choose for him to be. But this whole weight of the world PTSD aspect is baked into the plot of the third game. It would be one thing if you, the player, got to decide that he was starting to wear down in this way. But you don't get that decision. That's just who he is now. You get less of an impact on his personality. You still have Paragon Renegade. You still have some impact. But it's lessened. They introduce this idea that there was this weapon called the Catalyst that the Protheans had come up with but just didn't have the resources to build. The Protheans were the species that went extinct in the last cycle. They came up with this weapon that would destroy the Reapers. All of them. But they just didn't have the resources to build it. By the time they had developed it, their invasion was too far along. They couldn't build this thing. Basically, the war assets you're gathering are war assets to build this giant weapon and then to defend this giant weapon while it does its thing. There's no good scientific explanation for how this thing works. They don't even try. It's really space fantasy. There's some being, this star child thing, that is at the heart of the Catalyst. It's all very fantastical and not grounded sci-fi anymore. After you've been given these two games where you're told, we have to destroy the Reaper threat, we have to destroy the Reaper threat, they funnel everything at the very end into a completely different set of choices. They tell you, oh, by the way, the Catalyst, the way it works is it destroys all Reaper technology, so it will also destroy all the mass relays. So by destroying the Reapers, you will be ending all of advanced civilization. But the Reapers will be gone. Or you can opt to control the Reapers instead, which is kind of the dark ending. Because the Catalyst can also be used to magically control all the Reapers. Because of course it can. So you can, like, control the Reapers and then they do everyone's bidding. And then it's kind of dark because Shepard is personally controlling the Reapers. So he's, like, Emperor of the Universe now and he can use the Reapers to, like, kill anyone who disagrees with him or something. Or you can synthesize man and machine, just magically. All beings in the galaxy become a synthesis of man and machine. Because the reason that the Reapers do all of this is not because of saving the galaxy or anything, but because of a very tired trope that, oh, well, eventually when organic creates machine, there's always a conflict where the one side tries to destroy the other, and... It ends up being bad, okay? So we have to go kill all of that organic life every 50,000 years to and machine life so that this big conflict doesn't, like, destroy everything. And it's like, okay, well, that's not very inventive. So if we make everyone part organic and part machine, then everyone will be the same and they'll get along and we'll all live happily ever after. It's just magic hand wave again. 
a lot of the choices that you make throughout the games determine whether you have enough war assets to initiate the final mission, but they have no bearing on how the game ends. All those hundreds of decisions are funneled into only three endings, and those decisions only make very minor differences in how it plays out. At the end, you're still left with these three choices, control, synthesize, and destroy, that come completely out of left field because you've been told throughout the whole trilogy that destroying the Reapers is the only option. And again, if they want to give you more complex gray choices, that's fine, but you have to build up to them. Instead, none of this is mentioned until literally the very end of the game. Like, hey, by the way, now that you're here, you have these three choices. Which one you want to do, partner? Right at the end of the game. There's no foreshadowing. There's no build up to it. It's this magical star child telling you all about it and its magical catalyst device that can somehow do any of these three things. It can instantly destroy everything, but the destroy option also means you have to end all of civilization. Or you can control everything with the same device, or you can just hybridize everyone. It's ridiculous. Then, because they only had a year to do the game, they didn't have enough time to finish the end of the game, so the last mission is very rushed, and the ending is very rushed. You don't get any send-off for all of these characters and species that you have spent years, literally years, since 2007, developing a relationship with. They do delay the game to early 2012, you know, it was supposed to come out at the end of 2011, so they get a few more months because it's still so buggy. But it's not enough time to finish out that final mission. The ending is rushed, the ending is unsatisfactory, it provides no resolution, Fans were up in arms. The internet exploded. EA got voted worst company in America in the annual consumerist poll, ahead of companies that, let's be clear about, cheated people out of their money or killed them with things like cigarettes. I mean, okay, so the ending of Mass Effect 3 didn't live up to the hype. They didn't steal my retirement fund or kill me with cancer. I mean, let's have some context here on what worst corporation really means. Of course, you know, these polls are internet polls, and so this was just internet anger being directed irrationally, as it often is. It caused them to go back and create a new ending. I mean, they were going to make DLC for the game already, but the ending was the ending. The DLC was just stuff that takes place before the ending. They actually released an extended cut of the ending where they tried to provide a little more closure, which they had not been planning to do because the vitriol from the fans was so intense. It was, it was ugly. There's no other way to say it. It was inappropriate. It was ugly. I do think people had a right to be upset with what happened because I do think personally that the way the game and the series ended was a bit of a betrayal towards what they had built up to. That just means you're disappointed for a moment and you move on with your life. You don't go around giving death threats to developers or voting corporations worst in America because you didn't like how their game ended. I mean, come on now. That's Mass Effect 3. I mean, it still sold well. It was still well regarded on the whole. There have been lots of mods done to try to increase the impact of your decisions and change the ending. Oh, another thing is Shepard dies in almost every ending. You can theoretically survive in certain conditions, but Shepard dies in most versions of the ending. There's almost no way to prevent Shepard from dying. Yeah, your big hero character, and again, noble self-sacrifice can be a cool way to end a series, but in a series that's all about player choice and how your decisions throughout the series impact everything, 
give the player more of an opportunity to decide if their shepherd had to sacrifice themselves for the good of all, or if their shepherd got to triumph and live and bask in the glory of his success. That's the problem. They built this whole series on the concept of player choice. Your decisions really matter. You have hundreds of decisions, and they will all play a role in how the final game plays out. I mean, even in the marketing for Mass Effect 3, they said, we've tracked all of these decisions and they will play a major role. So it wasn't like a misunderstanding. They were told, we were told our decisions would impact on how it ended. And then to just be funneled into a few stock endings that were very rushed and did not have the scientific basis behind them that the whole rest of the game, the first two games it had behind them, the ending was just a mess. I mean, it just goes to show massive, the Mass Effect series made great strides in cinematic presentation. They made great strides in the way dialogue is done. They made great strides in decisions and impact of decisions. But they really couldn't quite pull off what they really wanted, which is that you have this character that makes these decisions across all three of these games, and everything you do spirals out from there to create vastly different outcomes based on what your shepherd did. That was the dream, and it didn't quite live up to it. But even without living up to it, I mean, it still holds a place in my heart and in the heart of many gamers, because it still was a uh, (laughs) massive achievement, even if it didn't reach all of its lofty goals. So there you are. I hope uh, that's it. We're done. That's part two. I hope people did not lose uh, a lot of money on those bets, uh, betting on a part three. We're not going to have one. We didn't even have to rush the ending to get there. We did not. We did not have to have the video game equivalent of lost again. That's right. Yeah. Good job, team. Wait, it's just a pair of us. Yeah, and the cats. The cat distracted me. I didn't say every member of the team was a productive member of the team. Oh, well, okay then. In that case, what horrors shall we delve into in our next episode? Well, uh, next I want to do a subject that has been on my mind for a very long time that we needed to wait to do again to give some space between some of our other episodes. We need to go back to Sega, and we need to finally tell the story of the Sega Saturn properly. The story of the Saturn is one that in English language sources had been drowned in a lot of rumors and misinformation and mistranslations. When we covered Sega in the 90s, way back in the day, I thought at that time we had enough information to clarify and tell that story in a way that did it justice. I made the uh, now rather embarrassing statement that if you take one thing away from this episode, it's a statement I'm usually proud to make, but in this case, it is only shame. If you take one thing away from this episode, it's that Sega did not add a second CPU late in development in response to the PlayStation. Turns out they did add a second CPU late in development to counter the PlayStation. So if you take one thing away from this episode, even though this is a Mass Effect episode, it's that the one thing you should have taken away in that other Sega episode, you should not take away from that episode. We've done other Sega episodes in between, and I didn't want to bunch things up and have too much Sega in a row. So now that we're decently removed from our most recent Sega content, Sega and CSK, which I want to emphasize is still good, there's nothing changing related to that content. It's our earlier Sega episode, Dreams of Sega, that I'm referring to that has this problem with the Saturn. 
now that we're further away from the uh, Sega and CSK episodes, I feel comfortable returning to Sega again, and we're not redoing the entire Dreams of Sega episode because most of that episode was fine. The problems in that episode were specifically surrounding the Saturn, so we're going to do more of a deep dive specifically on the Saturn, what Sega thought the market was going to look like, what the market actually looked like, how that put Sega in a very bad position, and how they tried to compensate for that and did not really succeed. I always think of Dreams of Sega as being about the Dreamcast, not the Saturn, so we'll just call that good. Alrighty. We'll see you next time on They Create World. The continuing saga of how many episodes are we going to make? Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Though I would really just get it through the Humble Bundle. $25. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Please help get the word out by leaving a review on your favorite podcasting service. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. And I write novels, chimed in the second one, but I haven't had any of them published yet, so I warn you, I'm in a mean mood. <laughs>